Kia ora and welcome to The Car Cut. This is my daily podcast and email. I'm Bernard Hickey. Today I wanted to have a look at uh, a couple of things that I focus on a lot, which are interest rates and house prices, because uh, they're often quite closely linked and our unaffordable housing market is right at the core of many of our problems. And you may have heard over the last few months that the housing market seems to be coming off the boil and that house prices may actually be falling. The Real Estate Institute's numbers show they actually fell in December and January and are now 2.7% below its peak. But you may also have seen some reporting this morning from CoreLogic, which uh, collects data on uh, house sales and house values, that the CoreLogic house price index in February uh, rose just 0.8% for the month. That is the slowest monthly growth in the CoreLogic index since September 2020. However, CoreLogic rightly says that the most recent numbers uh, coming through in the market in January and February actually suggest that it's slightly cooler than that 0.8%. The CoreLogic house price index is a bit of a combo of the last three months of figures and uh, it includes figures that have been announced and some that haven't and it tends to if you like smear the first month or two's momentum into the third month of the last three months being measured so that means that the figures for february which it reported today still include quite a bit of this sort of momentum and juice from december and january the Real Estate Institute figures really are more uh, bleeding edge. Uh, they are the most recent figures of actual sales reported during uh, February. And we're not going to get those for another week or two. But uh, most people expect they're likely to show another slight fall in the house price index as the Real Estate Institute collects it. Now we know that the Reserve Bank uh, just last week forecast that we would have a fall from a peak in November, last November, of around about 8.9%, so 9% by the end of next year. So we're talking about annual price deflation of around 4, 4.5% for a couple of years in a row. So 9% down from the peak, uh, having seen price increases of 40% plus in the two years since COVID. Now, um, it's worth, though, keeping an eye on interest rates. Now, one of the reasons for um, the uh, slowdown in the housing market over the last three or four months is the increase in interest rates we saw between about July last year and about December this year. So depending on which ones you're looking at, uh, floating rates or fixed rates, some of the more expensive fixed rates rose as much as uh, two percentage points to well over 4%. And uh, that obviously changes the economics and the calculations for a lot of people who are buying houses. Uh, but also at the same time, we saw the Reserve Bank tighten its LVR restrictions in November, essentially halving the amount of uh, low deposit lending that the banks, banks could do. And because the banks had been going hard at it for a couple of years, they had a lot of momentum to slow down. So in December and January, they uh, really put the brakes on. And when you've got a a super tanker like a bank, you really have to uh, do some quite dramatic things to really stop uh, the momentum quickly. So uh, many of them withdrew a lot of their pre-approvals for high LVR lending and significantly tightened their lending criteria. Also in 
in the, on the 1st of December, we had the new triple CFA uh, um, Consumer Credit Act come into force, which uh, prescribed that lending officers had to do a lot more checking of uh, uh, people's affordability levels before they signed off and that they would be uh, personally liable if they um, forced an unaffordable loan onto someone. Uh, this has gummed up the works a bit, although I suspect the bank's own needs to slow down their lending growth to meet the reserve bank requirements is as much a factor as the triple CFA changes. So the government is now looking at uh, uh, tweaking those triple CFA rules to help uh, um, restart lending growth. And we know now from figures that came out on Monday from the Reserve Bank that there has been a sharp slowdown in lending growth in January, which is the most recent figures we've got, and uh, that you've seen essentially a, a halving of the amount of fresh new lending in December and January from the previous 20 months or so during the post-COVID, or well not post-COVID, uh, post-first lockdown period. So um, there's been a tightening of credit, there's been an increase in interest rates, and that has certainly um, slowed the market down. Now the question a lot of people are asking is, oh, could this be the moment when uh, a 30-year-long upward trend in house prices, which coincided with a 30-year-long downward trend in interest rates, is that about to turn around? We've obviously had the shock of COVID, a supply shock into the global economy, which has pushed up inflation, and now central banks are looking to put up interest rates. We've also had just another supply shock, which is the uh, first uh, ground war between nations uh, since the Second World War of any great size in Europe. And uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has pushed up energy prices. So the price of oil rose over $106 a barrel this morning. And uh, there were various um, ructions going on in the global financial system because of the uh, ban on uh, trading with the Russian Central Bank and the removal of a bunch of Russian banks from the SWIFT international payment system. So how does this all affect the housing market and interest rates here? And are we actually going to have that reversal of trends? You remember we've seen a, a doubling of house prices pretty much every 10 years for the last 30 years. And the question is, you know, are we about to see something more substantial, a fall, you know, of the 30, 40, 50% variety, which would be somewhat a reversal of those trends over the last 30 years. And certainly if you saw interest rates, you know, jump from current the current official cash rate is one percent if you saw it jump to you know five or six or eight percent which we saw in 2007 then you'd certainly uh, see a significant uh, pressure on the housing market but interestingly overnight we saw a significant fall in wholesale interest rates globally now why is that because uh, uh, this war in Europe and the shock of higher energy prices is worrying some people that we're headed back towards the recession levels in the global economy. And that the inflation, which has certainly been there for the last couple of years, is going to go away quicker than expected because of the shock of this war on economic activity globally and particularly in Europe. And in particular, consumers, uh, when they're shocked by a big 
reduction in their real wages, um, a big increase in a particular price. Uh, sometimes they put their hands back in their pockets, they don't spend, and that can slow down their global economy. When that happens, the world central banks don't have to put up interest rates so quick. You also see a rush to safety, which means investors who had been putting their money into stocks and corporate bonds, riskier assets, get nervous, as you do during a war, and you put your money back into a government bond, sometimes called a treasury, uh, because that is seen as a very safe asset, because it's backed by a government, and in the case of the United States, backed by a government with a nuclear-powered fleet of aircraft carriers uh, and the world's biggest economy and the, the power to tax and is thought to never default even though we've been days away from default of the US Treasury debt. But putting that aside, uh, often there's a rush into safety whenever you have these sorts of, this sorts of uh, financial market grief. So overnight, we saw the US 10-year Treasury bond yield drop by 13 basis points to 1.71%. That's a significant move in the world's most liquid market. Also, we, we saw the German Bund, the 10-year Bund, that's the German Treasury bond yield. Now, that has been negative for most of the last two or three years, uh, shockingly. Uh, and just in the last couple of months, it has gone above the zero level to be actually a positive yield. So that means when you lend your money to the German government up until last night, you are actually getting some money back as opposed to paying the... German government money to look after your money. And that's before you take into the account of inflation, which is running at 5-6% in Germany. So uh, what we saw is a rush to safety into those German bonds, and it went negative again last night. What does this all mean for us? Well, obviously, we, we follow uh, international interest rates closely. There's a base which we're above. And so when it moves up and down, it, it can have a major effect. In fact, the Reserve Bank sites uh, or blames, depending on how you look at it, um, the big drop in global interest rates over the last 30 years for most of the rise in house prices, along, of course, with a shortage of uh, housing supply and various restrictions on land supply, uh, uh, su uh, infrastructure for housing, that sort of thing. So we should care about international interest rates. And what I'm saying is that last night something substantial changed, a big drop in international interest rates, and that takes some of the interest rate fear out of the outlook for the housing market. But more broadly, I thought it was worth just highlighting how different our New Zealand, our New Zealand housing market is, not just compared to the rest of the world, but compared to other assets. So uh, when you look at most markets for most goods and services that are freely traded, you see prices that go up and they go down. There's some sort of volatility, you know, you could win money, you could lose money. Uh, if you look at prices for stocks, you know, they can go up 10, 15, 30% in a year, and they can go down 10, 20, 30% in a year. And you see that too with commodity prices. You know, when you've got a free, freely informed uh, market with reasonably elastic demand and supply, you can see quite volatile prices. And we've certainly seen volatile prices in the housing market. You know, when you have 30% rise in house prices two years in a row, pretty much, uh, that's volatile. <laughs> and certainly for most other asset classes, that would be significant volatility. And you normally expect volatility on the other way as well. But we don't see that in New Zealand. We see essentially prices ratchet up, they gap up, but they never gap down. 
And so what you'd expect over the next few months as we go through the autumnal open home season and into the winter is that the market tends to sort of cool down. People who are trying to sell their houses perhaps don't get the price they expect that they might have seen on homes.co.nz or whatever. Go, ah, well, you know, I don't have to sell. The banks aren't certainly needing to sell. And for most people who have a job with unemployment at 3.2% and disposable household income rising between 5 and 10%, they certainly won't have a problem servicing the mortgages. And even if they did, the banks are unlikely to turf them out. And that's where I wanted to sort of look at the effectively guaranteed nature of the New Zealand housing market. Some of you who have listened to this over the years may have heard bits and pieces of the story mentioned, but I just wanted to pull them all together. Um, for those people who who wonder, gee, uh, why is the housing market different? The prices only ever ratchet up, and when they do come down, you know, at best they'll go down 5 or 10%, but they won't really collapse. Why is that? What's so different about the New Zealand market? And it is different compared to other housing markets too. Uh, if you look at, you know, Irish, Japanese, American, British housing markets, they can drop 20 30%, but not here. Why is that? Well, in the last 15 years, our central bank and our government has twice effectively bailed out the housing markets. And, uh, you know, many people in the economy and in government uh, would welcome that because in the process of bailing out the housing markets, they prevented a very sharp recession or worse, and unemployment didn't rise as much as it could have. But what it did is it essentially reinforced a... In this, an underlying government guarantee of a particular asset class. And I just wanted to just reinforce the examples of how this happened, because obviously central banks and governments don't go out of their way to tell everyone that they are effectively underwrite a particular market, because that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, governments like to think that they don't um, screw the scrum of a particular market. But housing is different. In the last 15 years, the government has rescued the housing market and our banking system effectively twice. In 2008-2009, when we had the global financial crisis, house prices were in the process of falling as much as about 10% through late 2008, early 2009. We had the Lehman collapse and the global financial crisis really freaked everyone out. So the Reserve Bank of, at the time cut the official cash rate from over 8% to about 2.5%, 3% in about six months. Secondly, uh, the government of the day, under both Labour, which was just ending its time, and National, introduced a effectively a government guarantee for banks and, and for the wholesale borrowing that the banks did. And then, without too much fanfare, uh, the Reserve Bank lent the banks almost $7 billion in very cheap funding to ensure that all of the hot money that they had in Europe um, continued to roll over. So that meant our banks survived well through the global financial crisis and were able to restart lending again through mid-2009 and that got house prices rising again. Uh, also, through 2009 and 2010, there was a tax working group under the then national government and the main recommendation that came back to Prime Minister John Key at the time was that there should be a 1% land tax to try to tax some of the unearned wealth 
in housing and maybe swap it for a cut in income tax. Uh, the Prime Minister at the time rejected that on the grounds that uh, the resulting 10 to 20% fall in house and land prices would stress the banks too much because they were so exposed to the housing market. And so uh, he also, over the next year or two, um, stopped talking about a supply shortage in the housing market and uh, in particular um, ensured that um, the government wasn't spending a lot of money on infrastructure to help getting houses built. And he worried that extra supply coming into the market from the government would uh, push down particularly apartment prices and other house prices in Auckland and that that was not a good thing. So um, that's the first bailout. Second bailout come March 2020 when COVID hit, the Reserve Bank slashed the official cash rate from 1% to 0.25%. It uh, um, removed uh, or suspended a requirement for banks to continue increasing their capital levels, which meant that they were able to con continue lending. It also um, removed the requirement that banks have to hold extra capital against loans that have defaulted or are in or are being or where payments are being deferred and um, yeah, that's all the creation of the mortgage deferral scheme. You also saw the Reserve Bank remove completely the loan to value ratio restrictions on the housing market to ensure banks could keep lending into that market and um, you also saw the Reserve Bank by the end of 2020 create a funding for lending scheme where it lent money directly to the banks at 0.25% uh, or the official cash rate um, to help provide cheap lending, cheap funding for them to lend money out, which they've used uh, up to the tune of $8 billion. And that program is actually still open. Now, since October, the Reserve Bank's put up the official cash rate, has stopped printing money. Oh, I forgot about the money printing. Um, and of course, there was the $55 billion worth of money printing to buy government bonds, which pushed down long-term interest rates and helped support asset prices. So that's the second bailout of the housing market by the government and the Reserve Bank. And it um, just reinforces that if we have another shock to the global economy because of, let's say, the war in Ukraine, or a big drop in prices because of uh, nervousness about rising interest rates, our Reserve Bank will step in to rescue the housing market and the banks who now completely depend on the housing market. Over the last two years, the uh, share of lending going into the housing market has significantly increased. I, I joke that we have an economy which isn't so much an economy, it's a housing market with bits tacked on. Well, that's certainly the case for our banking system. Uh, which really is, they're not really banks in the traditional sense of providing lending for businesses to operate. Um, they're mostly mortgage banks now. And that's a very profitable, uh, low-risk, low-volatility uh, source of uh, profits. But it has actually amplified uh, the issues we have where we have built, effectively, an asset market which is right at the core of our economy and society, which is too big to fail. And what it means is that we have a moral hazard problem, i.e. Uh, a lot of people are taking risks knowing that effectively the government is guaranteeing them. And because of the way that the Reserve Bank, rightly when you think about it, uh, ha are trying to limit the growth of those risks by limiting high LVR lending, they're effectively locking in the... Um, size of that too big to fail market 
and uh, stopping the natural forces of a market effectively clearing it and creating an equilibrium where in the long run demand equals supply and prices equal the long run marginal cost of a new unit of supply being a house. So uh, this means that we have a government which effectively uh, is ensuring that a too big to fail market uh, pulls up the ladder so no one else can get into it uh, when it should be putting the ladder down to allow people to get into it or at least lowering <laughs> lowering the house so that the ladder is shorter um, because this market is now too big to fail and unfortunately that just reinforces the moral hazard and the feedback loops in there which mean that when there is a risk that house prices fall, people are more likely to go, gee, oh, let's just hold on to this asset uh, because it's guaranteed never to fall too much and uh, I'll just wait. And because the banks are now are quite uh, profitable and have lots of capital, lots more than they actually had in 2008, in a good way, the Reserve Banks forced them to hold more capital in the gap between the two crises. Uh, that has meant that they are under no pressure to force mortgagee sales or anything like that. So the only people who sort of have to take a hit when there is this pressure on the market, and we're likely to see that over the next year or two, is the divorcees and the estate sales. But of course that's not high enough to really get things going. So uh, there it is. We are seeing international interest rates fall, in part because of the Ukraine war. We're seeing house prices nudge lower but not collapse in part because of a government guarantee effectively on our housing market which is unfair morally hazardous and has pulled up the ladder on the next generation and is imposing enormously high housing and social costs for our society we're effectively an economy and a society held hostage by a housing market I'm Bernard Hickey. This was The Kaka, a podcast I do daily and an email that is supported by paid subscribers to The Kaka and I appreciate the support to continue to do this sort of um, analytical, explanatory accountability and solutions journalism on the issues of housing and affordability, climate change in action and child poverty. I'm Bernard Hickey for The Kaka. It is Wednesday, March the 2nd. Kakite anō.